Hey friends, it's David Andrew here, and you are listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the good book turns our world upside down. Today's episode is Jared's good friend and cricket tragic, Reverend Renee August. We couldn't be more excited to have her on the show. Renee is an ordained priest in the Anglican Church in South Africa, where she was mentored by Bishop Desmond Tutu. Thanks to comedian Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, more people are becoming aware of how much our dialogue about race is often dominated by the North American discussion. And there are different complexities of colonization elsewhere in the world, like South Africa. And Trevor Noah has learnt the hard way through his incredible insensitivities to those realities within Australia. By the way, if you're part of our Patreon community, please don't miss the incredible discussion on the Australian context of colonization with Aboriginal theologians, activists and allies including Nicole Velosky, Adam Gowan and Chris D'Souza. Discussing with Jared, Drew Hartz and a blacktivist theology. Renee is also a leader at The Warehouse, a church network in Cape Town dedicated to addressing poverty and injustice effectively. It's at The Warehouse where Jared and Reverend Renee collaborated last year and did this interview. You're also going to hear in the background another incredible leader, organizer and a spoken word poet, Tandy Games. Don't worry, there's going to be an interview with Tandy on the podcast later this year. And in the podcast notes, we'll put up an interview she did with Jared at the Justice Conference in South Africa. Talking about links, before we go to the interview, you'll also find that there's a link to Jonathan Martin's podcast that I forgot to link last week because I was just so keen to get to the meat of what Jonathan was saying. So I apologize. We love him very much. He loves us. It's okay. We're all cool. Um, And uh, to link all of the links together, I'm really excited to meet Reverend Renee and Tandy with Jared and Jonathan Martin as we're all going to be in South Africa later this year. So more details in the coming weeks about how you can be a part of these adventures if you are in the neighborhood. But for now, enjoy the conversation with Jared, Renee, Tandy, as we explore how the good book can turn our world upside down. Thank you both for your time. Um, We've had a fun day trying to stalk uh, your friend Desmond Tutu, who unfortunately wasn't very well, and I'm trying to think about his health and not my feelings. Um, And we're literally sitting in a parking lot uh, before I go in and preach at this pavilion in, where are we? Musenberg. Musenberg in South Africa. And um, I'm here with, do you, like, I know you are a reverend, but would you like... Rev. Renee August, or no, just, just Renee. Just Renee. And Tandy, how? Just Tandy. Her holy apostle, Tandy. <laughs> yes, please. Okay, <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I am pleased to, to be with both of you. Tandy, um, uh, I had not heard of your fame until being here. Renee, you're a different story, however. <laughs> and so this is exciting to have you both here with us. And so the initial question that we always... Um, like to start with is when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? For me, my earliest memory of the scriptures is waking up in a bed next to my great-grandmother and she would be sitting up in bed reading the scriptures Mm. and that would generally be my experience of mornings. Um, In my family, we were eight in one house, three bedrooms, and so I got to share a bed with my great-grandmother. And so in these close quarters, her quiet time, her reading scripture um, in the mornings was also my experience. Wow. The memory is just warm and feeling very close to her. And um, she would read in front of um, a little clock that she had that said faith can move mountains mm. and uh, I always wanted to meet faith one day because <laughs> I just thought wow she must be really awesome <laughs> that's my earliest memories of the scriptures wow that is so precious like not being able to escape the holiness of your grandmother and learning mm. to read through through her mm-hmm. we, we yeah. passed uh, um, the area where you grew up uh, for those who are listening from other parts of the world and don't realise the setting of what that um, would mean. Um, so I grew up in um, Mitchell's Plain. Our family was um, part of the forced removals that happened in South Africa. And so there's a coloured township and we moved there in 1976. I was five years old and um, it was 
the only real place that was left available for us to move to. Mm. And that's where we, where I grew up. Wow. In that setting, hearing your grandmother um, uh, read the scriptures, pray the scriptures, and, and sharing a proximity to her spirituality and absorbing that was what was your experience of the scriptures were there something that was liberating in that context uh, were there something that um, compounded the oppression is it more complex than that how would you name how they were received by you I found the scriptures really confusing mm. it was a um, place of I would say disorientation because um, there were members of my family who believed that what was happening as a result of apartheid was God's will. Everything in this world was very Calvinist in their imagination. Wow. And so it was, you don't fight it, you don't argue against it. God is sovereign and God's will will always come to pass. Um, and so that was one view. And then on the other side, there were family members who were opposed to apartheid um, and who fought it on biblical grounds, that mm. this is the opposite of loving your neighbor, that when you are told to not treat someone like a neighbor, that would be anti-gospel, mm. and that's the reason why we need to fight against apartheid. And both of those views were present in my home, mm. and the Bible was used to quote and support both of those views, wow. which left me questioning what on earth does it mean when people say the Bible says dot, dot, dot. Yeah, and I, I guess growing up in this reality and um, uh, we're by the beach and we're looking at um, people catch a nice left-hander in front of us and we have the, the sound of the band warming up for tonight's meeting and we can hear the sirens in the background mm -hmm. in terms of what's going on in this location as well and with the reality of those sirens and the reality of what surrounds um, the complexities of these locations I guess a theology that says tis the will of God can be very comforting mm -hmm. um, a sense of control that my life is out of control our neighborhood is out of control but at, at least somebody um, and that must be incredibly tempting because of the security that provides mm -hmm. um, why not rest in that place why get involved in the messiness of what you express in terms of loving your neighbor and what what that means in a setting where um, people are literally classified by um, who somebody else decides your skin color is um, why leave the safety of everything that happens is God's will because loving your neighbor requires you to leave your front door hmm. um, because your neighbor is not in your home. Hmm. And so the moment you leave your front door, you're confronted with the reality that your neighbor's life is not as easy as you would like it to be. And it's not difficult because of any act of God. It's difficult because people are acting in ways that are unfair, exclusive, um, unjust, and, mm. and so you can't align yourself with love if you ignore that. Mm. And what stage did that happen in your journey, Renee? Is this a conviction from those early stages of, of hearing Grandma um, pray the scriptures, or um, at what stage did that become your own, that stance and that kind of expression of faith? I can't pinpoint a moment, I don't think. Um, I think there was always a progression in my understanding of what it meant and required. And there was, I had fantasies about becoming a nun one day mm. and, you know, giving away everything I have and being willing to make big sacrifices. Um, so I think I had romantic ideas about that. Mm when I was little and following Jesus in that way. But the reality was that I enjoyed the life of comfort that I li lived as well. 
I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> no worries at all. And it was unsilent. Uh, it was unsilent. David, David can um, quite happily... Sorry, but that went through edit. my Bluetooth on yeah, my phone. Yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to edit that out. And Dandy, remember, at any stage, you, if you would like to answer these questions, we'd, we'd love you to do so. Okay. Um, cool. y- you were saying? I was saying, what was I saying? Um, yeah, there was relative comfort. I remember um, the toilets in South Africa were marked for the exclusive use of white people or you know, toilets the way black people are allowed to use those. And so, especially men who were truck drivers would not have a place to relieve themselves. And my dad, whenever he saw a truck driver anywhere, he would invite them home. Mm. And they would come into our home and he would sort of walk in unannounced. And I remember my mother complaining, how does he know that there's enough food in the home? He has no idea what I've prepared for dinner, you know, and he would walk in and introduce his new best friend. Um, And these men would walk into our home and very often they would be smelly and they would go and use the toilet and then they would have a bath. And, you know, my dad would give them a razor and they would be shaving and leaving the bathroom in a mess. And I used to be annoyed with these men, truck drivers who would just come in and out of the house and leave the bathroom in a mess, and they would smell funny. Um, and I didn't want them in our home. I, mm. I was very selfish from that point of view. And my dad didn't really give us the option to not have them. He was going to welcome them in, give them a place to have a bath, and then feed a meal to them. And they would generally sit at the table, and we would eat together. And mm. um, I wished that they weren't there. I did wish them away. Mm. despite my desire to want to make sacrifices. Mm. So there's this ambiguity that I lived with and I guess there was a progression in my understanding of what it meant to love my neighbour. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate your honesty. In It's sometimes easy to summarise our stories in a hagiography and I appreciate you not only sharing a... I wanted to be a nun, but I also wanted a dinner table not with these strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, stinky strangers. Stinky strangers. You shared a little bit earlier today about your favourite movie, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating in terms of how it connected to your own story. Mm-hmm. W- was part of... Well, do you, do you want to share what that was and um, uh, how that connected for you and reflecting on how your parents raised you in the context of apartheid and their their involvement in the movement to to see an end to that and trying to protect you. Yeah, my favourite movie is Life is Beautiful. Mm. I don't even remember who directed it, but it's an Italian movie and um, the only subtitled movie I've ever watched, being dyslexic. Um, Mm. I had a very good friend of mine sit next Should to I have me. said amen then and actually <laughs> confess my dyslexia? Is that why you were looking to... Amen. Feel Solidarity. Free, yep. um, and so she... We sat shoulder to shoulder with our heads next to each other and she read the subtitles through every single line of that mm. movie. So I had the luxury of just watching it and she read it to me. Mm. Um, but I found the movie profoundly beautiful because... Of the storyline, there's this young child who um, is in Nazi Germany and he has no idea what's happening while his father and his mother are both living in concentration camps. And his father sort of tells him, oh, this is a game and these are the rules of the game and nobody must be able to find you. You must try and remain invisible. And if we get to a particular point and find mommy again, then we won. And so um, when soldiers come by, you know, he just explains this is all part of the game. And so this little boy has no idea what he's been through. Um, And towards the end of the movie, when a soldier finds him and they put him in a tanker and he sees his mother, his only response is, we won! Mm. Um, And that was a very sober... um, recall of my own life that there were certain things in South Africa that was miserable and horrible and unjust and my parents 
um, chose to tell us a different story, um, not to lie to us, but to simply tell the the story of South Africa to us differently. Mm. And um, I now appreciate it. I didn't back then, but I'm now grateful for what they did. And also just thinking from a the point of view of an adult, um, thinking what it must have cost them. Yes. Mm to yeah. be able to do that. So I'm really grateful to them for that. Yeah. I I find so confronting how out there you are with your dyslexia. There's a part of me that, that wants to ask a question around how scripture was part of the game. Um, mm-hmm. And there's another part of me that um, uh, I have worked my whole life to hide what you talk so openly about. And you're internationally respected in terms of um, contextual Bible studies and uh, leading that and facilitating that in um, such incredible ways. And it's been a great honour of mine since being here to like share in that work with you and you're so well respected. And we are talking about a text and texts are very difficult for us and I work so hard to hide that and you're so open with that. I've never heard a theologian talk about how difficult texts are in general. What is that like for you in the midst of all these other realities that, mm-hmm. that you hold? Part of my great-grandmother um, being in my, um, me being in her bed, is that when she noticed I was awake, she would start reading out loud. Mm. And so my first engagement with scripture has been an oral one. Yeah. And she had this glossy Bible. I remember all the photographs were in black and white. And um, I wanted to color them in with crayons. Mm. And she tried to explain to me, this is not a coloring book. This is a very special book. And the only question I had was, so when can I color in the pictures? Mm. And she made a deal with me. She said, if you can tell me the story... I will let you color in the pictures. Wow. And so I would beg her to tell me the stories again and again. So she would read the Bible to me again and again so I could repeat it back to her so that I could color in the pictures was mm. my agenda. Mm. And she was getting scripture into me. Mm. So I was three and I knew Psalm 121 off by heart mm. from the King James Version. I can still <laughs> recite it. <laughs> And Psalm 23 and Psalm 1 and, I don't know, random psalms. I could just, I was a little party trick. They would call me when they were visitors and they'd say, recite whichever psalm. And I would stand there and had no idea what I was saying. Hmm. But there were passages of scripture that I just memorized. And so there was a love for scripture already. And um, I think that's, there's something about that I I don't have problems believing that the Bible is the living word hmm. because those words lived inside of me for, still does, wow. really. Yeah. And um, and so I can read. I just find it very difficult to read. Hmm. And I find it easier to read with a ruler. And so I do read scripture. But I, I try and memorize chunks of it just so that I, when I need to read it in public, especially as a priest, um, you know, I just... I'm able to do some of it from memory mm. and not rely only on my ability to find words in a text. Mm. When did the game of that memorization actually become this? Because what's so striking about you, Renee, is the way that this text lives in you in ways that constantly causes Christ-like trouble. <laughs> like this. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And the funny thing else is everybody else knows exactly what I'm talking about. um, When did it move from something that um, uh, was wheeled out to impress family, friends, um, to become a form of uh, dignity and resistance in the midst of that and being willing to enter the fray? Hmm... I think the Kairos document is an instrumental piece in that story Um, because while there were these differing views on 
what apartheid was, whether it was God's will or something that was opposed to God's will, the Kairos document gave us language, biblical language, um, to talk about what Scripture requires of us. Amazing. And what that invitation meant. And so I guess that was sort of the first starting place. And then... Can can I just name that... I know a few people who would name theological documents as like life changing. <laughs> like that that says a lot about the theological work that was being done here, like and how mm-hmm. significant that actually yep. is. That's that's amazing for me to hear. Well I would say the Kairos document is not a theological document. Mm. It was written as a letter to the church. Mm. And it was written by a group of young lay people who were tired of the church's silence about the brutality of the police in townships, especially in Soweto Mm. during student uprisings. And it raised so many questions when you go to funeral after funeral after funeral and you see police move in and, you know, they're killing people in the name of Jesus. Those questions lived so acutely inside the bodies of these people that they began to ask questions of the church and then started writing this letter to the church as a way of saying we notice that there's no difference between what the state is saying and what the church is saying Hmm. and we don't understand that in light of what scripture is saying and so this letter to the church then later became a document Hmm. Um, and so I wouldn't call it a theological document. I, I think it is primarily a letter to the church. Wow. And, it still is. Epistle to the church in South Africa. What's that? An epistle to the church in an South Africa. An epistle to the church yeah, in wow. South Africa, exactly. Incredible. Yeah. I, I cut you off. You were going to say um, something else, but you need not. I just didn't want to make sure I like, didn't lead you back onto the track. I that don't you know. Were on. Was the Kairos document? Oh, and then um, part of the Christian group at my high school Mm. was um, involved with the ministry called Scripture Union Mm. and they had camps for intentionally multiracial camps and so it was my first opportunity to be in a temporary community with a group of people who were racially diverse and um, to begin to ask questions about South Africa, noticing, hold on, but all their bits look like my bits and it's just a different color and, mm. you know, what does humanity mean and look like and trying to make sense of all of that, that kind of, I think, became impetus as well for me to um, to get involved in some of the issues that were facing people who were my siblings. Yeah. yeah. When, when you hear... Sermons, theology, um, uh, worship from elsewhere. What gifts out of your own experience do you feel there are for the church elsewhere or or out of the South African experience more generally? But um, uh, as a woman, as a woman who under apartheid was designated as coloured, um, as a, a priest, um, what are others missing out on because they don't understand how and where you've read scripture from? Well, I guess I'm giving you a free invitation to a, mm-hmm. um, the heart of inverse is to read scripture in ways that, that turn our world upside down. Um, um, <clears throat> I think that the South African and African continent embrace a word that was made famous by Desmond Tutu, the word Ubuntu. Mm. Um, and this this word has at its heart a, the meaning of belonging. It's not just I am because of you, it's I belong to you and you belong to me. Wow. And we belong to each other. And um, scripture is a part of that belonging. And um, so I guess that framework 
in which I engage with scripture is a framework of belonging. That these words are not just about my Jesus, but our Jesus. And so my Jesus can't just look like me. My Jesus needs to look like you. Um, I can't sing about my salvation. I have to sing about our salvation. Yeah. And so salvation has to be bigger if it has to save both me and you. Um, love needs to be bigger if it's big enough for me and you. And my picture of God is bigger because it's our God. My picture of provision is bigger because I pray give us today our daily bread. Um, it's too small to just ask for my daily bread. That's not Jesus. And if that's my frame, then um, I think that can help us. And I find that absent in quite a lot of places outside of this country that I travel, and actually also places in this country, um, in certain spaces. I've been aware, just being here for two weeks, the use of the word them, mm -hmm. which has a certain... It holds a certain weightiness that it doesn't mm -hmm. at home. And um, them can be said in a theological register as well. Yeah. Uh, and your generosity in talking about Ubuntu is like, Jesus can't just look like me um, when there has been explicit theology that actually were the, we were talking earlier today that um, South Africa might have stolen the architecture from Australia for apartheid, but mm -hmm. you added to it a spirituality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the struggle for a Christianity which is liberating instead of oppressive, where does the generosity to say, not just like me, when I feel it would be so understandable in response to go, just like me, not like you. Well, what? Where does that come from? Because that—that that is. Um, that is not an, a natural response. <laughs> Might not be natural for you, mm. but it is for me. I mean, wow. I just—I don't think about it really. It's. Like, if we talk about Jesus given the for the world, John 3.16, mm. <clears throat> for God to love the cosmos, it's a cosmic love. Yeah. Um, and while I get told in Sunday school to take out that word cosmos and put my name in there, <laughs> um, I can't leave my name in there. I have to take it out again and put cosmos back. Because mm. um, otherwise salvation is reduced to my identity and gender and mm. needs and preferences. So oh, yeah. it's just unbiblical. Yeah. To start with. Yeah. But also not how I was raised. Yes. Well, I'm really appreciative of the lessons of your grandmother actually mm -hmm. informing a, a larger <laughs> audience. Um, I've asked if you'd choose a, a passage of scripture and if we could spend the rest of the time. That passage. Well, before we do that, there, there is, I know that you asked something about an experience that shaped or formed the way I read the text. Mm. And um, I did want to just mention a community of friends um, who were part of a conversation for about eight years um, and the group was called Amahoro. Amahoro is the Burundian word for shalom hmm. and we um, at the invitation of a host of friends got together and asked the question what are the ten biggest issues on the continent of Africa? And we came up a with a list about, of about eight things. I think it was a list of eight. And we then agreed with one another that we would meet together every year for the next eight years, reading scripture through that particular lens. And that process 
of um, doing that, but also the community of friends that we gathered around with in um, countries around this continent has profoundly shaped my um, ability to to listen to how scripture is heard and received and lived out in context outside of my own. Mm. Um, and and to be able to have the privilege of saying, well, let's read scripture through this lens of economics. And, and for me to do that from a South African point of view, but then to listen to you, you know, and what does that sound like in Burundi? And what does that sound like in Tanzania? And what does that sound like in Mozambique? And when you're thinking about your life in the US, what does that sound like? And, you know, what about Australia and in Canada? And what does that sound like in Sri Lanka? And to be able to hear the wealth um, of perspectives and the richness in our picture of who God is mm. um, and the just the dynamic relationship that comes from translations. Um, I think we've been robbed if we only read a translation in one language. Yeah. Um, besides knowing Hebrew and Greek, which I don't, I passed it, but I don't know mm. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's, you know, there's, there's certain words that just, they don't work in English. And then when someone tries in another language to explain this word to you, it kind of blows your English understanding of the word. Yes. Um, and then English is my second language. So I also know what that word is in Afrikaans, in my mother tongue. And there's, there's certain words there that's just like, you know, mm. has depth and it has like resonance in other places mm. that just is able to I don't know bring life to the text in a new way wow so yeah yeah that's that, that was a very formative um time for me sort of between 2007 to 2015 mm. yeah wow thanks for sharing that um which passage of scripture would you like to uh open up. Yeah, do you, do you want to, uh, Renee, what passage have you chosen for us? Uh, Mark chapter 5. I'd like to do the whole chapter, but we'll just, uh, for time's sake, 21 to the end of the chapter. Fantastic. And Tandi, are you going to read for us? Yes, sure. Thanks. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So, do I just talk? Oh, you're an you, you do okay. whatever you'd like to do. <laughs> so, um, I, I think what I want to say is the um, one of the practices and habits that I learnt through this Amahoro conversation is um, just being willing to read scripture through different lenses, putting on different spectacles and seeing um, what emerges from the text that's all always been there. And in South Africa, the the language around decolonization has been a very topical one. Um, and for me, colonization has to do with power and the reorganization of power. Mm. And so the invitation I have in this is when we read the Gospels, Jesus was living in a time of the Roman Empire and a power that seek to colonize Jesus and everyone else who was not Roman. Um, and so how then the question as I read scripture is, where do I recognize power? Um, what do I recognize in the text as representing power? And then in the decolonization conversation, um, is there a movement of power? What is the movement of power? Mm. What is the movement of social power, of religious power, of political power, of economic power? And um, more critically than that, what what does the actions of Jesus do to that movement of power? Wow. Um, and, and then also in these actions of Jesus, does that disrupt any systems mm. um, that that would have been present at the time. And so it's with those spectacles that I want mm. to look at the text today. Um, if you look at the, if I were acting out this chapter, I would have three people falling at their feet in front of Jesus. There would be Legion who falls at his feet, there's Jairus who falls at his feet, and there's a woman who falls at his feet. And Mark is trying to answer the question that we find in Mark chapter Nine, who do you say that I am? Yeah. Um, central to this text, if it was in a scroll and we rolled it up in the center of the text, we would find this question, who do you say that I am? Yes. And so Mark is answering this question in the way that he tells this story, who do you say that I am? And so it says when Jesus crossed over by boat to the other side, um, I won't get into too much of, of the other side and what that means. Mm. But he's coming from an area that would essentially make him unclean. And he comes over to the other side. And there's a large crowd that's gathering around him. And one of the synagogue rulers, religious power, Jairus, seeing Jesus, falls at his feet. And so that's a movement I see of power, of religious power being present in a community. And then that, as it were, almost willingly being, making himself subject to this Jesus character mm. who is, you know, the no-name brand with no power in the story. Um, and he, he comes and falls at his feet in front of Jesus and he does that because he's desperate. Um, he says to Jesus, please come, please come and put your hands on my daughter who is dying um, and he wants his daughter healed and so he begs Jesus who is now unclean because of where he's come from to come and touch not just to come into his home but to touch his daughter so that she can be healed hmm. and so the story moves from this you know Jesus coming from another place and the story suddenly everybody's moving towards Jairus's house and 
I feel a lot of energy there in the story. You know, mm. imagine Jesus suddenly, oh, yes, let's go to Jairus' house. And all of them are off, disciples included. Um, and it says a large following, a large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So the number 12 is significant. Um, 12 years she's been bleeding. And so this woman who has been bleeding now enters the story while it's on the move to Jairus's house. She'd suffered a great deal, it says, under the care of many doctors, and she'd used up all her money. So she's poor mm. and she's bleeding. And she says to herself, if I just touch his clothes. I mean, she's not, there's a crowd, but she's talking to herself. Mm. Like, she's not saying that to a friend. She she doesn't have people around her saying, hey, let's try and get you to Jesus. She's literally outside of community on her own. Um, and so economically, she has no power. Religiously, she has no power because she's bleeding. And she's got no social power because there's no one with her. She, she has no other agency. Um, and she says to herself, if I came up behind him and touched his cloak. And so she does exactly that. She, I don't know how she does it, but she maneuvers and is able to touch Jesus' clothing. And it says in Mark, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt that her body was healed. Now, I don't think her status changes at all in terms of she didn't suddenly get wealthy or suddenly gain any friends. But um, what she does do is she now attracts the attention of Jesus because mm. Jesus stops. Now, imagine this whole group of people moving towards Jairus' house and it's like, <laughs> breaks. And Jesus repents is the word. Mm. Jesus turns around and asks the question, who touched me? Now, if you imagine Jairus, who's Mr. Important in the neighborhood, he's got religious power, he's got his buddies with him, he's got servants who's, you know, on either side of him, jostling to try and get to Jairus' house quickly, and suddenly all of them have to stop. So, Jesus is stopping and turning immediately transfers social power to this woman. Mm. That movement. So she now has healing. She now has the attention of Jesus. And she suddenly has the attention of the crowd. Wow. So Jesus is reorientating the crowd and he's relocating power in the story from Jairus, who's the center of the story, to suddenly this bloody woman. <laughs> And she knows that Jesus is not going anywhere until he finds out who touched him. And Jesus asks again, who touched me? Knowing what had happened to her, Mark says, she came and fell at his feet, trembling, and told him the whole truth. Now, the whole truth is not just saying, hey, it's me. Hmm. It's like the little bit that Mark tells us about who she is. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She spent all her money. She's got, you know, all the doctors. No one could heal her. The whole story. She becomes the center of the story. Yeah. And Jesus gives her social power. Wow. And this Jesus who Jairus fell at his feet for is now, as it were, almost at the feet of this woman. Hmm. Um, and as she's telling her whole truth, everyone else gets to hear it. Even Jairus gets to hear her whole truth. And as Jesus hears this whole truth, he calls her daughter. Yeah. Your faith has healed you. Um she's unnamed in the story mm. but Jesus has a name for her 
and it's kinship. Yes. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And so it says, while Jesus is still saying this to her, and this is from a conversation with Ched Myers, while Jesus is saying to her daughter, your faith has healed you, boom, Jairus get told, your daughter is dead. So you imagine that simultaneously. Your faith has healed you, your daughter is dead. Mm. And from daughter your faith has healed you to your daughter is dead, imagine what happens for Jairus. I don't know what that's like. Um, feeling like you, you know, you're desperate, you're willing to fall at your feet and grovel to ask for help. <gasps> he said yes, and now Jesus is on his way to your house. And then again, this bloody woman stopping Jesus. And now my daughter's dead. How he feels about her. I, I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like for Jairus. I would want to strangle her and say to her, your problem could have waited. Now my daughter is dead. Um, Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has healed you. He says to Jairus, just believe. Mm. So it's like Jesus is inviting Jairus to see this other daughter and see her faith, because that's what he needs. Wow. Like, this bloody woman has, as bereft as we see her to be, what Jairus needs. Huh. Um, she has the faith to believe Jesus, mm. and that's what Jairus is invited to do. And so the, the story goes on. But it says now he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I don't know why it was a boys' club, but, you know, Mark was writing and we understand the context. Um, so they go off and they, they go to Jairus's house. And there's a commotion um, at the house and... Jesus is asking, why all the commotion? Why are you wailing? The child is not dead. She's asleep. And obviously they laugh at him. And, um, and Jesus puts all of them out. And so Jairus's wife, the child's mother, and Jairus are together with the disciples in the room. So we must remember that Jairus is a synagogue ruler. Mm that Jesus is unclean from the start of the story. Yeah, wow. When Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Like the woman's already healed. She's got what she came for. Who benefits from her identity being known? Not Jesus. Mm -hmm. The only thing her identity does is exposes Jesus as being unclean. Again, wow. Again. Jesus has been touched by a bloody woman. And Jairus saw that. And now Jairus has Jesus in his home. Jesus enters Jairus' home with his disciples without having cleaned himself. And this girl is dead. Hmm. Jesus knows... It's taboo. You don't touch dead bodies. Jesus again makes himself unclean. I mean, he could have just spoken the words, Talita kum. Mm. We know that. But Jesus touches her. He takes her by the hand and says to her, Talita kum. And little girl get up is a little insipid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we'll give the translators that, but it's a calling out of her truest identity. And this little girl too gets given in other translations, the name daughter. Mm. And so there are these two women who don't get named, but they both get called daughter. 
and Jesus taking her by the hand. She says immediately the girl got stood up and walked around. And then in brackets, she was 12 years old. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Yeah. This girl is 12 years old. And we know the number 12 and 12 is a message for the nation of Israel. What does that mean for us if we are to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to do what Jesus does? Um, because, I mean, the other question behind the what's the movement of power is what systems did Jesus disrupt yeah. in, in this action of stopping and touching and allowed to be touched? Um, you know, there's the very obvious gender <clears throat> stereotypes that would be present within that culture that a woman doesn't touch a man in public. And and if it happened accidentally and they're not married, the man certainly doesn't tell anyone about it. Mm. <clears throat> Sorry, so there's all this religious power that's being messed with completely. I'm glad that I'm not a disciple present in the story because I would be asking the question, who on earth are you, Jesus? Mm. Which is the question Mark wants us to sit with. Yeah. Who? are you? Well, who do you say I am? I'm the one who's willing to be unclean. I'm the one who is willing to touch. I'm the one who's willing to be touched. I'm the one who repents. Yeah. I'm the one who, through my actions, centers the one whose story is not heard. Giving social power to a woman where Jairus has to stop and listen to her whole truth. And as Jairus does that, it comes at great cost to him. So for people in power, people with influence, people who are used to getting things done, what happens when you stop with Jesus to listen to the whole truth of someone else? You run the risk of having your baby die. Wow. And, and that's what happens to Jairus. Huh. His, his baby dies. But that's not the end of the story. It's not just yes. your baby gets to be dead. Jesus takes Jairus and says, just believe. And Jesus has the power to raise this baby of his back to life and give her back um, to this person of power. Mm. And I, I think what that says to me is the in the places where I have power, in the places where I have children, <laughs> um, and and sometimes my busyness makes me lose track of those who need to be centered in the story of Jesus. Mm. Um, that even when my babies die, um, Jesus can give them back to me. And... And that not only gives me hope, but it, it means that I can then take hold of the things that Jesus gives to me, not the things that I want to keep alive. Yeah. You know, every action of Jairus here is about the life and survival of his daughter. This is my child. She must live. And then she dies. Um, and, yeah, I don't know what your child is, what your baby is. But following this Jesus does require willingness to listen to the whole story of someone who is not like me, who has no power compared to me. And, and in that lies the opportunity for me to receive back from Jesus. the little baby that Jesus wants to give back to me. Hmm. Um, and 
And so I think this text has the potential to change the world because there's something in it for all of us. Um, if I'm the woman in the story and I have used up every resource I have and still find myself in need, still find myself wanting, still find myself powerless, um, there's the system has within it a narrative that I'm useless, that I'm worthless, that I don't belong. She could have listened to all of those stories and not found herself in the crowd. Yeah. She had to overcome the stories that everyone has told her about her bleeding and where she belonged. And she, she chose to believe a different story about herself. Mm. And that choosing put her in proximity to Jesus. Yeah. And so what are the narratives that I buy into that keeps me at a distance that that says I have no right to be in the presence of anyone let alone anyone with power um, it gives agency that she's able to she's not looking for someone to go call Jesus for her she goes and she t touches Jesus even though she knows she's breaking every rule mm. in the book um, and so there's something there. But then there's, if, if I'm a person with power and privilege, that walking with Jesus, like I said, requires me to stop and to turn and to listen mm. um, and to get over myself mm. and to be willing to let die and to trust Jesus to bring to life the things that, is for me to care about. Thank you, Renee. Mm. Tandy, you're not getting out of this completely. <laughs> if it's not this time, it will be next time I'm here. But I'm also aware of everything you want to share, and it would be silly for me, even if I'm supposed to be in a prayer meeting before I preach. <laughs> um, are there reflections that you would like to name on the text as as we close? Um, so I think as you were speaking, Renee, um, and just reading the text, the one thing. Um, that I thought about was um, so you talked about the repentance and Jesus turning to look at the woman um, and just kind of that movement towards Jairus and, and towards power and um, kind of feels like this wave that is just sweeping towards the power like the crowd is behind and this powerful person knows where he wants to go and is kind of leading the way there. And um, that's where Jesus is going. And just thinking about like how easy it is to kind of get swept up in power um, and like movements towards power, um, kind of whoever you are, because that's what the narratives kind of dictate and um, it's very easy to go along with the narratives of the empire and that's kind of the easy way out because that's what we've been socialized into mm. um, and e even when it is oppressing us I think um, we've been socialized into kind of acting the way that different spaces ask us to act in and um, showing, showing respect and honour to the people that the system asks us to show respect and honour to and to respect their wishes um, and respect their time and respect their interests more than the interests of the marginalised mm. and the ones that the um, empire seeks to invisibilise. And so I think like that you said repent is such an interesting word because it's like actually I repent and I turn away from um, 
being swept up in the movements of the empire and in recognizing those things and those powers and giving life and giving my energy to those powers. But actually, I'm going to choose a different way and I'm going to recognize the one with no power mm. and the one who the system is trying to tell me to ignore and to not recognize. Um, and so powerful what you were saying about that it's actually art. when you do that, you're actually drawing the power into doing that too. Um, and so it's not only you that ends up turning and um, putting those people in your spotlight, but actually you're turning the whole system on its head. Mm. Um, yeah, so I just, I think I feel challenged by that. Um, and, and I think so um, something that Renee often says, which I really appreciate is that you can't change power or you can't subvert power until you can see it. Um, yeah. And um, so seeing it here meant like Jesus recognizing um, that touch and, and I guess hearing, hearing the voice or hearing the heart's cry of the vulnerable. Um, and so intentionally doing that um, and intentionally trying to make us aware of that so that we are able to see those powers and name those powers and in doing that to subvert those powers. Mm. Yeah, so powerful. And even as you're describing it, I'm thinking of some of the stories of Tutu that you shared and how he didn't move with the mob, even in simple mm -hmm. things like praise and thanks mm -hmm. and how being grounded in prayer and, and constantly saying, not me, but all the others and, and that those kind of ways of how prayer sensitizes you to who's touching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm also struck by both of your reflections that here is Jesus and for him it is, it is compassion that is primary not cleanliness mm -hmm. and he thinks what's contagious is not sin but this mm -hmm. sanctifying work where the invisible become visible and the unheard are finally heard yeah. and um, what is it as as leaders and particularly faith leaders where um, sometimes uh, the temptation is to spend your time with the powerful, powerful mm -hmm. and prioritise mm -hmm. the gyruses and tell the powerless to just believe mm -hmm. that Jesus does the opposite mm -hmm. and he spends time with those who have been made powerless and holds them up mm -hmm. as an example to the powerful of what real belief. And when you were talking about Ubuntu and, and what that means in, in this text, that Jairus's salvation is caught up mm -hmm. in this woman. Exactly. Phenomenal. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the 12 and the 12, the 12 yeah. years of the woman's bleeding. It, like, this is a, yeah. a message for the nation. Yes. You know, your healing is connected to hers. Yes. Mm. You belong to one another. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's, it's God incarnate who contaminates our holiness projects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that yeah. just, and that um, Jesus himself shows us what it is to repent. Yeah. Mm hmm I mean, that's that's a crazy yeah. kind of humility right there. Yeah. And uh, I think of the experience yesterday and how power was working in that that workshop. And mm -hmm. I learned so much from you yesterday, R Renee, um, and re respect you so much for the way that the agenda was able to be moved aside because people were touching <laughs> mm. and we... And you practiced this text. You yeah. actually provided the space um, for those whose stories mm. weren't heard to be heard. Yeah. Uh, while those who others would position in places of power or even why people are there, it was like, wait a sec. Um, oh, no, like, like as the outsider. But like, um, and here's me having to learn, and thankfully so, from those who know a faith that, I wish I could believe like that, mm. right? Like, I, 
wish I could be that honest with my pain. Mm. And uh, I want to I want to thank you both and um, you in particular, Renee, for for trusting me in that space, for taking me under your wing in that space, for your generosity to me in that space, and. Um, mm. Thank you for this time now mm. and the way that um, you've both fed into my life. It's my joy to share you with others, even if it's for selfish reasons of my friends are awesome <laughs> and I want everybody to know how great they are. Um, so thank you both. Mm, thank, thank you, Jared. God bless you. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this week's episode. We are going to see you again in about two weeks where we come at you with a freshie. So uh, use your time wisely, look after the world, and we will see you in a couple of weeks.